Welcome to Mint, the corner of where crypto meets the creator economy. My name is Adam Levy, and every Tuesday and Thursday, I'll be showing you how the creators of today are building the communities of tomorrow by harnessing the power of Web3. Before we kick off this episode, I wanted to recognize one of the NFT sponsors that's helping make Mint a reality. They are CyberConnect, a decentralized social graph protocol allowing users to own and control their social connections while providing a universal data layer backed by powerful social features to empower developers. Already with 150,000 users and 3 million connections, CyberConnect is the largest decentralized social graph supporting Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Near, and Solana with more coming soon. To learn more, visit cyberconnect.me and start connecting with everyone in Web3. This episode welcomes Andre Benz, founder of the widely successful EDM YouTube channel titled The Nations and CEO of SoundMint.xyz, a platform for curated audiovisual NFTs. I wanted to have him on and be a part of season five, basically to share his unique experience on growth hacking one of the largest curated music EDM brands on YouTube and how this kind of translates into him building a new venture in Web3 uh, and the role of music NFTs in Web3 as a whole. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Andre, welcome to Mint. What is going on, my friend? Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Uh, not much, man. Just enjoying the enjoying the day. I'm excited to have you guys on. Uh, I've been watching you guys for a minute now. I think we got connected when one of your buddies that's working with you at SoundMint reached out. I was like, yo, you got to check out what we're doing at SoundMint. It's the sickest thing in the world, blah, blah, blah. And here we are today. Uh, part of season five. And uh, I wanted to have you on. We're celebrating three themes, okay? Music, obviously, you have a big background in music. We're also doing video and CCO licensing, which I know SoundMint has a cross between CCO to an extent and the music mm-hmm. side of things as well. So before we get into SoundMint, what you guys are doing, I always like to start with an intro. So Andre, who are you? What does the world need to know about you? Uh, and how did you get your start into crypto more specifically? That's a good question. Uh, my name is Andre. Obviously, I come from music uh, primarily. Crypto is pretty um, new to me in some ways. I, I think like most people, um, I got started in like 2017 and I got burnt really bad. I just lost a lot of money. Um, and that was like, a, I guess a, it was a good way to start and also a bad way. I learned a lot, obviously, because it burnt me, but also you know, moving into it, you know, I found all these projects that I thought were super cool, but um, I didn't really touch crypto for a while since 2017. And then, um, you know, Paris and Brian, my two colleagues that I founded Salmon with, came uh, came to me with this idea while I was still running Trap Nation, which I started when I was fifteen. Um, and they, you know, went into this you know long, lengthy conversation about how you know NFTs are taking over. And I saw these people from the music industry, you know, eventually kind of transition to NFTs. And I thought, wow, I should be you know paying attention to this. This looks really interesting. And I made a Twitter, um, started following a lot of people, and then um, I kind of took the plunge from. Um, you know, the whole Trap Nation thing um, to into Salmons. And at first it was more kind of just like me consulting, kind of advising a little bit, seeing where I could find my fit. And then eventually now uh, fully transitioned into like a CEO position at the company. Um, and one of the co-founders as well. So what was it like starting Trap Nation or the nations in general? It's one of the biggest platforms. I remember when I was in high school, 2018, 2019, uh, one of my homies, Gavin, uh, from King Cavaliers, he got yeah, featured yeah. on on the Nations on Trap Nation, and that's around the first time I kind of came across um, uh, the the brand. But what what, what was it like, kind of like building out that platform, building out millions of subscribers, 
um, and kind of defining your own corner in the music industry? Yeah, it's a good question, man. Honestly, um, I never thought I would work in music ever or grow a brand or be on social media at all. Um, it just kind of happened by, by a miracle almost, but, uh, I've, I've, I was never, I started when I was 15. So before I was 15 though, before I even got into YouTube, I was still like, I was a really big video gamer. I played a lot of games with my friends and we, I played RuneScape primarily for Let's go. all my life. So much time <laughs> in my life I spent on that game, but I was in clans all the time. And, uh, you know, clans are basically just like, you know, the communities and games that you go do stuff with quest or whatever it is kill monsters um and we always share music in these clans and at the time like spotify wasn't really big i think in the u.s yet soundcloud was still coming up and youtube wasn't really like a music streaming service per se but it was a place where you could discover music subsequently so what i would do is i'd found electronic music i think through twitch i was watching like spark mac or something like that and i heard skrillex and i was like oh my god it's insane and i looked up on youtube um and i found all these channels like uqf dubstep and ultra music like yeah. all these curators i didn't know what they were at the time um and i just thought wow this is like easy way to share music i'm gonna do the same so i started a channel called ultra nation and all i did was just upload music that i listened to on the side that shared with my friends and that was just the easiest way to share it at the time um but i brand- started to realize i was like oh i should start like a brand around it so i started a brand around it um and i just i kept running it as kind of like a side hobby uh, primarily because I just wanted to do something other than, you know, do homework or study or whatever it is. It was just another side hobby to, to develop. And, uh, it was a lot of fun at the time. And then, you know, time went on and uh, eventually just kept growing, you know, incrementally every day, like a staircase almost. Um, and at one point, I think I uploaded like a, a remix of a Miley Cyrus breaking, um, wrecking ball, I think it was called, like one of her like big singles yeah. back then. And it just blew up. This is when Vine was really, really big as a social media platform. Mm. Um, and Vine was a massive, like it was like that first social media app that really catapulted or changed trajectory in terms of marketing for the music industry because nobody really looked at social media apps as uh, full marketing like methods for their singles. And Vine was really that first like, thing that that took it to that level and uh i didn't realize that at the time but when i uploaded the my osiris thing it blew up on vine and then all those people from vine followed over to my channel um and then from there i was like you know i feel like probably one of my biggest skill sets or or like attributes is i just i'm not a super smart guy or like very clever guy just when i get good opportunities i know when to fully go on on them like to take advantage of them i guess um and i just saw this as like the only golden opportunity i'm probably gonna have in my life to change everything from there so i just looked at it, i was like all right this worked so let's do it again so i just got another remix of another miley cyrus song and did it again and it blew up again and from there it was just kind of all history because it was just i started learning like basically patternistic based like business approaches to everything so like building systems and scaling and i realized i need more people on my team uh even at like 15 or 16 that could do what I was doing, but for other genres as well, other than just trap music. Um, so I brought on some friends, like curate other channels. And then, yeah, I just, I just kept at it. And eventually last year of high school, I graduated, took a year off, uh, didn't go to college and then moved down to Los Angeles and like hired my first like formal, uh, nice. employee and nice. then started a record label publishing company. And, uh, yeah, recently within the last three months, uh, sold the majority stick to create music group, which is an independent Crazy. music distribution company. 
So let's talk about two things for a sec, okay? Your time playing RuneScape, because I was a huge RuneScape head, okay? And I always meet more and more people that started like their, their childhood or remember a core piece of their childhood in RuneScape, and now they're in crypto for whatever reason, okay? Yeah. And two, I want to talk to you about growth strategies and like hacking views and hacking subscribers and if you use any tactics. tactics. But for RuneScape, okay? Number one, RuneScape. How do you think playing RuneScape has translated into you kind of understanding the world of Web3 and the world of crypto? Is there any similarities or are yeah. there any similarities? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, it's pretty funny because I feel like every time I've talked to people, and this is not the first time people have spoken about like similarities between RuneScape and I guess like yeah. Web3. Yeah, there's a bunch of similarities. I mean, I think like at the end of the day, it was, it was a time period in a lot of people's lives looking back at even my own time period, but now being able to reflect that period of the internet was so like magical but also scary because there were so many new innovations happening this is when like 4chan was super big still and like reddit was was going crazy and like blowing people like musicians up and just topics up and it was kind of sparking like independent i guess like um discovery like information discovery or something like that but in terms of runescape uh, it was in this period where there weren't like a lot of advanced video games out um, so, and it was very like economic based. So it's like, I, am sure everybody remembers if you played RuneScape, you remember the grand exchange and the grand exchange is like, you know, it's, it's, you know, you iconic. go and sell, yeah, iconic, <laughs> you sell, you learn to trade, you get scammed, you, um, learn humiliation, embarrassment, responsibility, how to look out for, uh, scammers, hackers, fishers, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, it just throws you in that world. Uh, I think that you can't get in other video games per se, maybe, I guess like World of Warcraft is another one you could say is pretty similar in that, in that sense. But I think Web3 is very like, do it yourself independent. Um, and you need a lot of responsibility and humiliation sometimes based on whether you fail, whether you, you know, you make out uh, well, but I think it's the same thing with RuneScape. Like it's just, you, know, you get dived into this fucking massive game and everybody's you know, trading things. And obviously you know, with gold in the game and all these items, like it, it's basically the empty market now just without the verification part, without the blockchain back then. You know, one of my fondest memories is um, is doing a lot of these quests um, for like, what's it called? Uh, just like the day-to-day quest of advancing yourself and getting more XP and boosting up your 99 score and, and, and all that stuff. And that's very reminiscent of, of, for me at least, of what's happening in crypto, of getting involved with all these projects and trying different things and leveling, leveling up like your your OG-ness for your wallet address, you know, and yeah. being able to tap into different projects, protocols, DeFi pools, all these different things. Another thing, uh, side tangent, the amount of times I've tried to get a fire cape uh, and I've actually fucking failed at doing that yeah, yeah. is uh, <laughs> is crazy. Also getting uh, party hats and all the firecrackers and all the, the unique like one of ones or one of 100s that they've released mm-hmm. uh, prior to the game going like mainstream. Because when you saw someone with a party hat, you knew they were OG, you know? So when you see yeah. someone with a CryptoPunk or you see someone with a board Ape, you know either they've been OG and they collected it on the mint day or they just have a lot of money, you know, and sets their yeah. status in uh, in the in the real world, I guess. Very reminiscent yeah. of, of RuneScape. Okay, yeah. so that's RuneScape, okay? What about growth strategies and growth hacking uh, Trap Nation or the nations and getting millions of subscribers? I know you built it at a different time than what we're at today. Uh, with YouTube and the algorithms and and how people get paid and and all that stuff, but how did you how do you growth hack millions and millions of subscribers? You're, you're, the way you put it, you just post a link online and just like that, you get views and you get virality. Yeah. 
But I doubt, I, I maybe it was like the first time, you know, but as you progressed, I'm sure you kind of picked up different tactics, different strategies connected with other YouTubers that share different insight. I'd assume, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but how do you, how do you go into growth hacking a channel on a brand like that on, online? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, honestly, it's a little bit different for Trap Nation. Like I'm sure if anybody's familiar with like the YouTube landscape, like you're familiar with Mr. Beast or like um yeah you know pewdiepie and stuff like that and those channels i think when it comes to like actual vlogging or personality driven like content that's and the thumb everything is oriented around growth hacking so if you ever watch like an interview with mr beast he can go on for 10 hours just how how he follows all these different systems to make sure his videos do well for trap nation it's a little different because i follow a routine or the channel the brand company now follows a routine where every day basically at the same time almost the same time uh back then at least i would wake up and upload a remix of a song or just like an electronic song in general and i was delivering content based on people's routines so i saw that like views on the channel would skyrocket every every day from monday to friday right before school starts or right during school starts in the morning and then right after <laughs> which is like that makes sense because if you're going to school or going to work or the office mm-hmm. you're going to be listening to this channel from like 7 a.m to 9 a.m and then after when you get home 3 p.m to like 6 p.m or 7 p.m sunday saturday sundays always went down um and i put but i play it to my advantage so i would you know make sure i was uploading always when people would get a notification going to work or going to school or something like that um and i'd always follow a consistent sound and i knew that the biggest kind of like uh, back then at least driving factor for uh, YouTube recommending your videos was just audience retention and then how many people of your subscribers are going back to your videos over and over and over again um, I guess like audience retention at that point as well uh, so I just play that to my advantage and then over time I started to learn that like you know thumbnails were a huge player driver visuals were a huge driver uh, as as much things that I could do or different opportunities that I could implement in the channel to keep people in the channel but also get new people new eyes into the channel that helps youtube's algorithm push your content even more um, but i didn't have the luxury of doing things like mr beast where he makes these really eye-popping thumbnails with the red text circles you know the face and stuff like that um, i just had to play to the trap nation logo and the colors that i used in my visualizer which i think were a massive uh you know help in blowing up the channel to full popularity um but after that it was just i just keep it kept it really consistent it's just routine honestly um you know making sure i was tagging the right tags like edm electronic music etc but honestly there's not like a huge secret to growth hacking and youtube um the biggest i guess like tip that i'll give anybody it's just audience retention the longer that you can keep people on your videos the more youtube will recommend your video to people because naturally youtube is a for-profit business so they want people on their website longer than any other website possible the longer those people are on youtube's website the more they're going to benefit the creators who are getting those people on their website um and you can do that in many different ways just for us that that was our method for mr bc has his own i'm sure if you're like a podcaster or a youtuber that does vlogs uh you'll have those specific methods to uh those individuals as well as creators yeah um i i haven't really cracked the code just yet on youtube i feel like i'm getting more uh, like a bigger audience on on spotify and apple music and on audio it's actually my biggest platform and my biggest reach and still trying to figure out how do you growth hack youtube and as a creator when you're when you're very much like a one-man show for the most part that's doing this full time 
you have so much responsibility and so much duty to kind of master each platform that you publish on to it to, to yeah. reach its peak virality, right? So with time, so shout out to all my YouTube viewers. I love you guys. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to talk to you about more of your time in high school for a minute. Were you the coolest kid in high school? No. You were not? I was quiet. Dis- no. dis- despite, were you, well, I mean, well, did people know what you were doing in high school? Like were people? No, not really. Why not? not until I graduated, basically, oh, or okay. the year of graduation. You know, that was that was when. But also, just full transparently, transparent, um, transparently, the first school that I went to in high school was very small. Like it was only maybe sixty to seventy kids per class, and it was oh. uh, sixth grade. No, sorry, it was seventh grade to twelfth grade in one school. So it was very tiny. And then last year of high school, for my senior year, I moved from uh, New Jersey to. Uh, like Menlo Park in California. And then that school was a thousand kids per grade. It was nine to 12. Uh, so was, I was in this, I'm not like a very like a sociable person. So when I moved, it was like, you know, I only had a few friends in that high school. And then I moved to the new high school. It's like, well, this, I, I think I was making like a hundred grand a year by that point when I was mm-hmm. 17 or 18 moving Jeez. to this new school. So at that point I was just like, oh, this is do- totally going to be my future. I really need to like pursue it. And then my mindset is like, I, I, if I, do something i have to i become obsessive about it and i can't let anything else uh, get me out of that like tunnel vision that i i get which is also which is a huge pro but it's also a huge con uh so when i went to the new high school i was just like all right i'm not making any friends i'm gonna be fucking miserable i'm gonna cut all my classes as much as possible just so i can get my bare minimum credits and then uh that's what really helps me like grow the channel because i was just on this like again like this really obsessive routine clock where i'd wake up at like 4 30 a.m work from 4.30 to like 9, go to school, get back at 2.30, and then just like work my ass off and just continue that for a year straight. And that's that was like that. Uh, so that didn't help like my social life. Yeah, but I could imagine that here. character in high school. I can genuinely imagine <laughs> that person. Oh, my God. It's a kid that it's a kid that you never notice, honestly. Like I was yeah. a kid that would just walk the halls and like nobody would ever notice me because I'm the new kid and like I don't really talk to anybody. But um, I had a few friends. It just, it just wasn't like, you know, I didn't make effort whatsoever, you know, past that. I feel like you could have thrown the sickest high school parties and you just chose not to from all the connections <laughs> and, all, and all the network that you built for yourself. Yeah. You could have definitely be, became that kid, that kid that everybody knew in high school. But I also understand the idea of being focused and keeping your head down and staying in your lane and all that. Yeah. Um, you know, I would, I would imagine like, so, okay. A couple of things. I very much relate to that to an extent. Uh, when I was in college, I, I did well in community college. So I did two years in community college before transferring into like upper grad, like the, the major university. And when I was in community college, I was doing well. I was working a few jobs, studying, getting straight A's, blah, blah, blah. But when I hit USC, I was sucking. I was absolutely miserable. And you were actually the opposite. Like you were just trying to like pass by school just to focus on what you, you what made you dough, what, what made you happy. For me, it was very much, I sucked my first semester in college. I ate shit. I failed all my exams. And I realized I was putting so much energy locking myself in these rooms and studying that none of it is paying off. And if I were to put that energy into something else, I would have done exceptionally better. So I said, fuck it. I'm just going to pass, get the bare minimum and focus on all the extracurricular stuff. And ended up getting into crypto through that as well, starting a crypto club, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so I really, I really relate to that mentality. I really relate to that mindset, obviously in different contexts. I wasn't bringing in six figures at the time. I was maybe spending six, (laughs) spending six figures at the time. Um, But yeah, I digress. Okay. I want to backtrack more and transition into music and Web3. Okay. So obviously building the nations, building out one of the most successful YouTube channels, uh, EDM channels on YouTube, uh, definitely taught you things about the music industry. 
right? As someone maybe you didn't intentionally try to learn about it, but definitely taught you about how things work, right? And I'm curious to get your point of view because a lot of what the ethos behind Web3 music is removing the middleman, right? Uh, removing the the scummy deals of artists getting themselves into of doing like 80, 20 rev shares um, and getting these upfront pays. I know uh, from what I understand doing research, you guys didn't have the the upfront to give people more so you, you were able to pay them periodically more frequently than the record labels uh, were able to. Um, but backtrack even more. What are some of the biggest lessons you learned on the music industry, right? That what, what are the biggest takeaways that have kind of shaped your understanding of how to approach SoundMint, for example? Because I'm sure there's a lot of relatability and cross lessons that you can kind of like go back and forth on. Yeah, um, there's a lot for sure. I mean, honestly, with the SoundMint stuff, it's it's really great because I made like, there's this weird, like, uh, I guess, like mental effect of like being thrown into something so challenging at a younger age, because I think you're just, you have such a faster way to learn and improve. At least I did. I feel like I did for sure. And I use like all those mistakes that I made then to my advantage now with SoundMint. Um, but with the music industry, like people, it's such a, it's a weird, it's a weird industry because people uh, romanticize it and they flaunt it as like this perfect or ideal or idealistic uh, thing that everybody wants to be a part of. It's very cool. It's very mysterious. Nobody really understands it. Um, and it's all kind of on purpose, to be honest. Like it's all run by major corporations and companies like most industries. Um, it's slowly becoming more independent based on the creators that are a part of it and contributing to its growth. Um, but what I've learned from it is um, there's a lot of successful people in the media industry that shouldn't be successful. I think that, um, you know, just ended up getting in there because they, they were, they were friends with the right person who were an A&R or they, uh, they signed the right artist and that's like what catapulted the career. And then since then they haven't done anything and they're just like riding a wave or something like that. Um, and it just made me realize it's like, I always thought when I first got into the music industry, when I was much younger, like 17 or 18, I thought that I was always like the dumbest kid in the room kind of thing. It was like, everybody would look at you like you're this young kid, you got super lucky um, and they're going to try and take advantage of you. And then, you know, over time they started to realize we're like, Oh fuck, like that didn't work out for us. Like this guy is actually, you know, continually growing and like scaling, building your own company. Um, And I just realized it's like, just put your head down and just get your shit done and and do what you think works best for, for you. Or that was me talking to myself in that scenario. Um, and I'm just using that in Web3 as well. Like, I feel like Web3 is very, um, obviously, there's a lot of bad media coverage about it. But I think from the outsider's view, everybody looks at it as just like a bunch of digital JPEGs getting traded, you know, digital JPEG monkeys getting traded for half millions of dollars. And people are on Twitter uh, just for 24 hours a day, never sleeping kind of thing. Um, and it just doesn't have a good perspective. And I think for me, and even inside like Web3, I think a lot of people on Twitter, it can be very toxic sometimes. And I think people get sucked up into this this vacuum of like information and they can't get out of it. So for me, I'm just in this uh, kind of like barrier where I'm just like, all right, head down. I'm going to continue to build this product. Uh, I don't care what anybody has to say. I don't care what the community says about the floor. I don't care about, um, you know, the fact that we didn't make somebody, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in in a month uh based on buying our nfts um i just you know put my head down and just get to work um and just continue to push through and i think that's what i've learned the most from the music industry although i wouldn't even say it's music related it's just uh growing a business in it um for the most part if you're familiar with uh the nations and trap nations uh audio visuals uh it's very unique they're very distinct the sound waves and how they kind of pulsate and the 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 color choices 
I feel like it's it's almost like the perfect medium to transfer into Web3. Um, and Soundmint focuses on audiovisual, uh, curated audio audiovisuals um, with really curated uh, artists, having exclusive artists, um, doing unique drops. And is that what was going through your mind? Like, we're already doing this on YouTube. It only makes sense to bring it into Web3. Like, what, what, what was your thought process in kind of building Soundmint? Because from the surface, it looks very reminiscent to what happened with Trap Nations and the audiovisuals created to what's happening now uh, on Soundmint. It is. I mean, to be honest, like, like I said, I just used what I know from Trap Nation. I'm using it for Soundmint. And I think that's my advantage. And that's why Paris and Brian brought me on as like a co-founder to really build this out for them. Yeah. Um, I think the general idea, like sometimes I have difficulty um, understanding like NFTs at its core beyond just like the psychological effect of being in communities and winning together and making a lot of money. Sometimes it's very difficult for me to justify like, oh, why are we making these like collections and selling them? Um, but at other times it's like, well, you know, it's extremely cool art. Like we're building a brand. Like my whole goal of Salmon is, or I guess my whole goal of Salmon based off Trap Nation successes, I built Trap Nation to be a curation brand. And I'm going to do the same with Salmon, but I'm going to do it way better and much more curated and have much more taste associated with it. I think with Trap Nation, it worked because it was so much volume. Like we had eight channels doing an upload a day. That's eight uploads every single day. Um, you know, it's, it's, it was a lot of music and we built a record label off that. I think with Web3 for us, like I want to do the same that I did with Trap Nation, where it's build a really reputable music brand that people can trust that'll put out high quality product or high quality content in this case. Um, but do it in a way that's almost like, uh, the Supreme, I wouldn't say even the Supreme of music NFTs, but like, I just want to create a brand that people look at and like, that is the dopest brand in Web3 NFTs for music related product. Um, whether it's NFTs or not, it's just, that's what I want to do. And it, it just happened to be that it worked out to be Soundmint and it is NFTs. So what are some of the lessons learned from curation and web two and, and curating a YouTube channel and curating like a, a brand, a music brand to now curating artists and drops in, in web three around NFTs and crypto, et cetera. Yeah. I think with Trap Nation stuff, the most that I've learned from it in terms of curating on that channel is YouTube, yeah, your integrity is everything on YouTube for your community and YouTube's entirely community-based. So if you let down uh, your community, you let that is like your core listener base, your viewerships or your views are coming from your community. Whereas you know, pro most products and most services in Web2 don't rely on community more or less, I think. Um, but YouTube primarily does. I'm taking it to my advantage with Salmon as well, based on learning how to uh, deliver product and keep consistent results for the community. Um, I think for Salmon thing stuff, though, it, the patience is not as... I think it, people don't have as much patience, I think, in Web3, but also they're investing their time and money into what you're selling. With Trap Nation, nobody's buying anything. Like It was always a $0 exchange interaction where people would trust me to deliver music they would like uh, you know, for their daily routines, whatever it may be. And that existed for a long time. Whereas with Salmont, because there is financials involved, we don't have the luxury of being able to put out 100 uploads and only two or three succeed. Every single, in this case, uploads mean uh, NFTs. So in this case, we can't do that many uploads. So every single one has to succeed. Every single one has to be 
you know, a uh, home run basically for Salmon. So the the, root, the margin for error is much, much, much smaller on Salmon, which makes the pressure and the stakes a lot higher. But it also makes the importance of actual true curation um, and prioritizing the product, the quality of the product that we're putting out that much more important. And I think that's really the difference between the Trap Nation stuff with Web 2 and the Salmon stuff with Web 3 and kind of like what I've been mm-hmm. able to take in contrast so far. You know, earlier in the conversation, you brought up uh, an interesting point of sometimes you question the drops and I, I'm going to paraphrase. I don't know. I don't want to say word for word what you said. So correct me if I, if I say something, but you, you kind of, I'm paraphrasing here. So you, you said something like uh, you, you have sometimes confusion understanding. Why are we dropping certain things? Why are some collections doing really well? Except like, what is the value over here? And I'd love for you to kind of elaborate more on that because I think you're very right to feel like that. I think many of us tend to feel like that at times. Like, why is this collection selling out raising 70 mil and then they disappear and they bring no value. They only take value. There's no value to come back into the community. And I'd love to hear your point of view and to elaborate on that more in the context of music. And what does that mean for starting a successful music NFT uh, Web3 kind of brand? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's a, it's a challenging question. It's, it's not, it's something I still struggle with because for me, like, from coming from trap nation like i was so used to again like a zero dollar transaction artists wouldn't pay us we wouldn't get paid from the artists we would make only money from google ad revenue uh paying us on ads being placed on uh, the youtube videos and the customer or the consumer or the community would never pay us either so it was always like nobody ever had expectations because there was no financials attached to it and now that we are moving into a curation-based model with financials to it we have to prioritize much more in what we're able to deliver to the community, not just as a product, but also as a brand. Like, you know, we have to do live events. We have to release the best merchandise. We have to make sure everything we do is near perfect because if you let down even a tiny bit, the community looks at that as a failure in most regards. Um, and it, it's just not a, it just is not great for us. And I'm very perfect about everything I want to do, and which is also a pro and con. Um, but I think for NFTs, like when I first got into it, Again, this is most people still have this. I think idea. It's like why, why do why do you know projects have to sell mints for you know two or three ETH? You know why does a project? What does a company like Pixelmon need like a seven million dollar fundraising round from the community or from their customers to build this product? You know that's not how building businesses work. So for that's us, the exact I'm example like, I was thinking about too. By the way, <laughs> yeah, it, it just blew my mind. Like honestly, like you don't need that much money to kickstart a business. I think if you truly know what your business, your core product is, and what you need to do to scale, you can do it with a few thousand dollars, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars. It really depends like how you can sell the vision to other people. For us, luckily, Brian and our team was able to fundraise or basically raise enough funds by himself through his own you know, personal life and his trade. He does a lot of like EFI trades and NFT trades, and he used all that money to kind of kickstart the company. Um, and it was not nearly, you know, even close to like a million dollars. I think it was like a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars that yeah. cost us to like get it off the ground. Um, but for us, like it for music NFTs. It's interesting because we're in a weird world right now, Salmon, where we're hitting NFT like DJing collectors, but we're also hitting like art collectors and also music NFT collectors. Typically, like I would say, the music NFT community is not like DJ and NFT collectors, but it, and it's also not fine art collectors either. It's like this small little micro community, very, very tiny. Um, and for that community, I think people are very interested in buying music NFTs to support the creators. Where for us, we want to support the creators, obviously, and we do. But we want to make sure the product that people are buying 
the reason they're buying it isn't just to support the creators. They're buying it because it's really fucking dope. It's actually a unique piece of music that they can own from one of their favorite artists if they choose to buy from their, one of their favorite artists on our platform. And they also get access to the ecosystem of Soundman, which is like a live events, uh, merchandise, brand partnerships, collaborations, and the list goes on. Um, so you're kind of getting this like, we're trying to make it the best of three worlds and not sacrifice anything in, in that exchange, which is why it takes so long for us to do our collections. We spend so much time you know, building them. So can you walk me more through the process of building a collection? What does that look like? Yeah. So from like start, it's basically from start to finish, I'll simplify it as much as possible um, without sacrificing details. Uh, we curate uh, and pair talented visual artists with talented musicians. Um, let's just say we take uh, X musician and pair them with Y visual artist. They have to make um like generative visuals, you have to make hundreds of different layers and make sure they can get layered on top of each other with the algorithm that's combining them. It's that same system, but with music as well. So the musician has to go into a studio and instead of making stems for a song or an album or an EP per se, uh, they have to make stems in the same key and BPM. And instead of making you know 10 or 20, they're making hundreds mostly. Um, and they make them in categories. So for instance, like if you... If you were to do a drop with Selma and you're a uh, EDM producer and you want to do a drop with us, uh, you would make like 25 vocal um, stems, 25 um, stems of a riser, 25 stems of baseline, uh, chords, um, drums, you know, whatever it is. And then you combine those categories with visual traits. So say you want to combine, you want to make the vocal category of 25 stems uh, paired with uh, the color of a square or something like that, or the texture of a square. And then you would go to like the baseline and you'd pair the baseline category with uh, the background uh, color or something like that. You know, the list goes on. You could do really whatever you want. It's, I'm just trying to simplify as much as possible so it's more digestible. Yeah. Um, and then you would feed all that, all those files to a server or to um, a computer. And then you'd give it metadata basically to tell it what to do. Um, so that's where you would tell the, you know, the algorithm basically to combine uh, you know, visual trait one with uh, music stem category three or something like that. Um, and then you can depict the rarity and then you have all these unique generated generated audiovisual collectibles that normally without the music, most projects are already doing that. That's how board apes are generated, cool cats, et cetera, et cetera. But when you combine it with music and you also make it reactive on the audiovisual sense, it's really fucking interesting because you can, as a collector, you can own a one out of 2,500 collectible from, let's say your favorite artist is Kei Trinata. Mm -hmm. You can own a Kei Trinata music art collectible that has never been heard before. Nobody else has anything like it. It may yeah. sound similar to other people in the collection, but nobody's, nobody's truly is what you have. Yeah. And it can have rarity attached to it. So say maybe Kei Trinata wanted to have like three vocals in there that are super, super rare and you get one, like then you could also have a rare uh, visual trait attached to it as well. I've developed a new love for uh, collecting these auto-generative pieces. Um, I got to be fully honest. I haven't collected one on Soundmint yet. I've been collecting. Uh, I collected a few on Beat Foundry um, yeah. only because I, I came across Soundmint after Beat Foundry, and I, I'm really looking forward to the upcoming drop. I'm, I'm really stoked for that, which we can talk about as well. But I got to tell you, I wrote this in my recap blog post of season four that I published on Mirror. Uh, I dedicated a specific section to auto-generative music. I think I'm, I'm so incredibly bullish on that medium and on that concept. And it takes a certain ear while maybe the tracks don't sound as like pleasing as let's say a top 40 or a top 10 on Billboard. 
there's a new level of appreciation that I've kind of developed to that because it's a mix of code. It's a mix of art. It's a mix of music. It's a mix of creativity. It has all these different like potions mixed and combined just to create a single track. And okay. in fact, it genuinely fascinates me. It genuinely fascinates me. And it's really, it's, it's like doing injustice to describe it in a verbal way. You really just have to listen to what these compositions uh, sound like, what they feel like, and kind of go from there. And I'll link a few in the show notes. Do you imagine uh, there being like a Grammy nominated hit or a top 40 on the near horizon? From like a generated. From a thing? generative. Yeah. 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 Um, honestly, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Like I think. Yeah, I'm gonna, I don't know if it's I don't know yes or no. I, I think there is a chance though, and for us at Summit, like I think we're trying to prove to people where it's like generative music isn't just like bleeps and bloops. It's actually mm-hmm. real music. It can be really advanced and sound like an actual song. And I think we're gonna prove that with our next drop. I think first drop that we did with Cloud, he's an electronic producer, so there's no vocals or anything really. Right. On it. It's, it's very electronic and techno driven. With our next drop, Kai and Cruz, they're a vocalist or they're a singer, an artist. Um, and it's taken so long to develop the drop primarily because we're, we were taking fundamentals principles on the general music based on electronic music and trying to apply it to an artist. And it can't be applied the same way because there's different fundamentals to how that music's created compared to EDM. But we went through some of the collection or we did test exports of, uh, the collection like two weeks ago. Um, and I can confidently say, uh, at each one's a minute long, um, I've listened to probably over like a hundred so far. Every single one sounds vastly different. Every single one sounds like a song that you'd hear on Spotify from this artist, yeah. like a streamable song. Um, and every single one is extremely good. It's, we have this own, we have an algorithm that mix and masters it based on reference files that we send to it. So we can take like a Drake song and say, Hey, we want this uh, to be mix and mastered like this Drake song, send it to oh, the algorithm sick. and it'll export it like a Drake mix and master. And we've been testing out with different <laughs> songs and, I, I think it'll it'll people hear it and they'll know for themselves when they listen to it. But I can confidently say that that's our second collection. I think once we get to a larger artist like a Drake per se, and we're on like our tenth collection, and we have a bunch of different protocols and systems in place and different um, modes of software that we've developed that can actually continue to evolve and progress and really accelerate the uh, sound, the quality of the sound that we're able to put out through some collections. I think you could easily see one of these um generative exports like be able to be heard on the radio or be streamed on spotify hundreds of millions of times so when i collect this nft okay and i get a unique version of it what do i get with it because this is a common this is a common uh, conversation that people have in the space and like the music is a utility do you need anything else like collecting the art for the sake of collecting the art and i know on sound mint you get certain rights and access to to different things. So could you could you walk me through more of that? Yeah. So it's so that you get the way I like to explain it is you get access to three verticals. So the first and each vertical is dependent on who's participating in the drop. So the first vertical is Salmon's ecosystem. Salmon's mm-hmm. ecosystem is basically you're buying into you're buying a Salmon NFT and you get access to Salmon brand. Similar if you were to buy an Azuki NFT or Board Ape, you know, NFT, you get access to the Board Ape brand, to the Azuki brand. But when you buy a music NFT, you're buying to support the artist and you're getting access to the, to the artist's career. But the artist is not a brand. The artist is a, is, they're a creator. They're creating NFTs for art. They're not creating NFTs necessarily to build you know, a brand like Azuki or Bordip, which you know, are 
they are a company that hire people. So for Soundmint, we want to take that same approach where people, NFT collectors, buy NFTs because they believe in the team and the brand. They get access to Soundmint as a brand, as a music brand. So we do, we're going to be doing live events. We're going to be doing uh, merchandise collaborations with the artists that we bring on. We're going to be doing brand partnerships with other live event companies like Insomniac. Uh, I'm not, we're not doing a partnership with Insomniac. These are all just examples. Um, but that's the plan in my head is I want to build Soundmint as a brand where people can collect these music NFTs because they absolutely love the art, but also they get access to all these extra features and um, benefits through the brand of Soundmint. The second vertical is the music artist. So the music artist can give whatever perks and benefits they want. They don't have to. We do. We encourage them to do perks and benefits, but I would never put an artist in a scenario or a creator in a scenario where they're creating art because they're a creator and an artist. Um, and they feel pressured to give all these benefits and perks because uh, of the system that we put them in. So we always tell them, hey, look, we recommend doing person benefits, but don't do them if you can't deliver on them. It's worse always to overpromise and underdeliver than underpromise and overdeliver. So we just tell them, you know, whatever perks and benefits you can give, give them. So that's the second vertical. You get access to that. Third vertical is the visual artist. So for example, for example, the next shop we're doing with Kai and Cruz and some hoodlum. Some Hoodlum already has uh, their own NFT collection called Hoodlum, Hoodlums out on Sturdy Exchange. Sturdy Exchange, it's already sold out. Um, and he has a bunch of utility and benefits. And I know utility is a hot word, but like benefits and um, access to like clubs and shows and events and stuff like that for his own holders. So that now gets transferred over to people who buy this collection as well, uh, because this is his second NFT collection per se, I guess, quote unquote. It's actually his first on Ethereum, which is super cool. Um, and that's the third vertical. So when you buy Salmon NFT, specifically Salmon NFT, you get access to the Salmon brand, you get access to the musicers, and you also get access to the visual artists. And the way I kind of like to explain this is, imagine if we did um, a drop with Beeple, we did a drop with uh, Beeple as the visual artist, the music artist was Kei Trinata, um, and it's through Salmon as a brand. I mean, that's pretty fucking cool. You can get access to whatever the artist decides to give you, whatever people wants to give you through his ecosystem and then whatever Sam is developing through our ecosystem. Mm, okay. Got it. When, when people collect uh, uh, a generative piece, who's, who, what does the average collector look like? Like who, who are they? Cause it takes a certain individual to appreciate this, this medium. Cause it's, it's one thing to collect a music NFT, right. And to support an artist for the sake of a song, but there's so much more. I mean, you could argue differently. I was going to say there's so much more, uh, I feel like thought processing, creativity, and work that goes into not only uh, generating uh, the song, right, but piecing it all together, uh, finding and overlapping the right loops and the right beats and the right synths and all these different stems together. And I, I'm, a, I'm a collector, so you're looking at one of them over here, but I'm trying to find other people that really appreciate this medium because a lot of it is also like the 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 general art trading and flipping side of things right that nfts kind of bring into crypto um and the speculative nature of of these files um but there's also the level of appreciation like i don't know if i'm going to sell my my beat foundry one right i don't know i haven't really thought about it like maybe i'd consider selling other music nfts that i've collected because i just appreciate it i really i really really appreciate it when you have drops being sold out i'm sure you talk to the collectors who purchase these things who are they? Why are they buying into it? What do they appreciate from this from this mix, from this collection? What does that really look like? Yeah, um, that's something we're still figuring out, honestly. I think uh, we're still in a weird period or phase where 
the first drop we did was, I think, very like, you know, like and retweet for whitelist kind of like uh, collector driven. Mm -hmm. So we got a lot of we learned, unfortunately, from this mistake, but we got a lot of people who were buying it just for like a quick flip. Um, mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's not our target demographic at all. I think we do want to approach people that actually enjoy and find value in holding one of these NFTs for the long-term benefits and also supporting the artist, collecting it because they actually want to, not just because they're going to yeah. make profit. Yeah. Um, I think it's a mix between music NFT collectors that exist in the tiny community that already uh, you know, is valid, is, is there. Um, and I think it's also a mix of fine art collectors or people who uh want to buy something truly because they just love their art of it not just the music but also the visual side of it as well Mm -hmm. um i think we're really targeting those two demographics i don't think our primary demographic or community member is somebody who is a part of a lot of other larger nft projects per se and is active in those communities like i would never say that our target demographic is somebody who owns a kinzuki and a board ape um because i think those Mm -hmm communities are they have precedents and ideology ideologies on how nfts should operate based on the success of those projects that they bought and i don't think we can mimic or replicate that that success in the same exact way um and i don't think we would be able to deliver a positive experience if they bought our nfts because it is a different ecosystem so mm-hmm. we're trying to kind of separate those two um, and make sure we're targeting the right people to collect from us the last question I want to ask you, Andre, is um, how do you scale curation? So what do I mean by that? Okay. For for those who don't know, um, there's a lot of platforms out there that just allow anybody to come on board, mint their stuff and try to sell it and find a collector. But there's other platforms where collectors look to the platforms to kind of curate the right drops uh, that bring not only like musical value and like appreciation to the, to the, to the NFT in question, but also there may or may not be upside in it as well, right? So there's a level of curation that kind of like has its strengths. But one of the weakest points of curation is scalability um, and versus having an open platform where anybody can go on curation, you really you really take time to really think critically about who are you going to let on next? Who are we going to work with, et cetera? But how have you kind of come across some different areas, if any, to be able to scale curation? And what does that look like? Yeah, Um I think it's it's slow. I mean, obviously, like the the nuance of curation is you're playing a mental game based on like human psychology for the most part. Um, you always want everything that you put out to feel extremely exclusive, but you also, when you do that, you also are putting on the pressure that the product that you're going to be delivering, based on expectations, they have has to be met, it has to be leagues above everybody else. Um, so that obviously requires a lot of time and we're learning that as a curation platform. We thought we were going to be able to do a drop a month. Uh, that's not the case. We're, you know, we're looking at maybe a drop every four months at this point because it just takes that much more time to develop these drops. Um, I think scalability comes when you can build, when you start (coughs) building confidence as a company, but also you build really good systems in places and systems in place to, uh, grow and ensure you can bring on higher volume without sacrificing that quality. Um, I think for us, really scalability, I think, comes down to we'll never sacrifice the quality of the drops we're putting out. And I don't think we'll ever change the volume that we're putting them out either. I think we're always going to keep them exclusive and make sure we're doing drops with the top artists and the top visual artists. And the product is just absolutely stunning every single time. I think we're never going to sacrifice that. And that's going to scale with the size of the artists and the caliber of the artists that we bring on. I think to scale the company overall, though, as a curation company, we just have to deliver... Um, or introduce more products over time. 
Um, the, I would say product number one it, are these generative curated audiovisual collections. I think product number two could be something where we're building our own in-house visual team and we're making like Salmon original collections where we bring in the music producers in-house, the visual team in-house, and we're creating uh, fully like full commercial licensable like music NFTs that anybody can buy. You can use them in your commercials, you can use them in uh, your production, you can use them in remixes, you can do whatever the fuck you want with them, you own them. Um, I think that could be another product. Um, you know, I we have conversations every day internally about, oh, what does this look like in two years? What does this look like in a year? And um, I think there's value in seeing a long-term vision of something, like seeing the end goal of it. But for us, I always tell the team, it's like, it, you know, quick daydreaming, just figure out what we need to deliver in the next three months. Let's absolutely crush it. And then once we're there in the next three months, we can figure out the next three months from there. And we can figure out the next three months after those three months and yeah. just keep building and building and building. Because I think sometimes building a company i've realized that when you have too many visionaries on board everybody likes to think of oh my god what if we get to you know what if we do this collection with yeah. drake and you know yeah. ariana grande or something like that we're gonna be worth a billion dollars i'm like none of that happens if we don't make the next three months work for this company so yeah. i just say like stop focusing on that let's, let's just make sure we bring in the right artists and we'll, we'll figure out scalability over time too many visionaries in one room is not uh is not a good thing um Yes, depending <laughs> on which context and i know that firsthand uh andre yeah. this was great man before i let you go where can we find you where can we find uh sound mint i also want you to quickly plug the next project as well um for a minute and when that's coming out um and then kind of wrap up yeah yeah so i'm active mostly on twitter uh at ben speaks b-e-n-z is my last name and then speaks like i'm speaking um and then on twitter we're at salmon xyz um, yeah. For our next collection, uh, it's called Back in Time by Kyan Cruz and some of them. Kyan Cruz is the music artist or a uh, R&B kind of like hip hop artist from South Africa that now lives in Los Angeles. And we paired them with a uh, visual artist, some of them, who's done artwork for Twin Savage, Little Nas, uh, Drake. They have a sure. show on Amazon Prime Video called Fairfax um, that they do all the animation and illustration for. Um, and that comes out, uh, actually, we don't know the exact date, but it will probably be the next uh, two, three weeks around middle of May. Cool. Andre, thank you so much. We got to do this again soon. I appreciate you being a part of season. Of course, dude. I appreciate you having me. It was awesome. We got it. Congratulations on making it this far into the episode. You are a champ. And because of that, I want to say thank you by giving you a free participation NFT. You can claim yours today by visiting adamlevy.io forward slash NFT. Follow the steps on your screen. You'll be good to go. Also, depending on which platform you're listening on, be sure to like, subscribe, comment, share, favorite, etc. It really helps grow the platform and our reach online. And last but not least, I want to give some love and recognize one of our NFT sponsors who's helping make this episode a reality. They are CyberConnect, a decentralized social graph protocol allowing users to own and control their social connections while providing a universal data layer backed by powerful social features to empower developers. Already with 150,000 users and 3 million connections, CyberConnect is the largest decentralized social graph supporting Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Nier, and Solana with more coming soon. To learn more, visit cyberconnect.me and start connecting with everyone in Web3.